welcome to a special summer series of the world in 30 minutes where we are reporting on European sovereignty. The decision by Donald Trump to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which we have discussed on many podcasts before, was a real wake-up call to many Europeans because for the first time in many years, they realised that even when Europeans are united and are willing to take a common decision and to put real resources behind it, they can struggle to have their voice heard in the world. And once they recovered from the shock of dealing with um, this threat to the single biggest achievement of European diplomacy for over a decade, they realised that as we enter a world of greater great power competition, the Iran nuclear deal is just the tip of an iceberg of vulnerability where we are struggling to defend our interests in the world. And for that reason, ECFR launched a big series on the topic of of European sovereignty, where we have looked at a lot of these different fields, at the economic area, at at artificial intelligence, at sanctions, uh, hybrid warfare, and at the traditional sphere of security and defence. And it is that area that we will be focusing on today. I am joined by Nick Whitney, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And he's also uh, had a lifetime of working in this field for many years, was a senior official in the Ministry of Defence in the UK, and was then the founding director of the European Defence Agency. Um, He's been on the podcast many times before, um, and he wrote a brilliant paper looking at how to build Europeans' capacity to defend themselves. So, Nick, your paper starts with a quite a shocking scenario. Why, why don't we start with that? Because I think that's a good way into this question of, of European sovereignty. Mark, yes, why not? The scenario is just set uh, maybe a year ahead and begins with the idea of a Russian incursion into the Baltic states. It's easy to imagine a range of circumstances which might give Mr. Putin the opportunity to um, uh, send a Russian peacekeeping force across the border into Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania to um, to uh, deal with civil unrest, very much as he did with Ukraine. And the problem that we now face in Europe is the realization that the Russians have restored their conventional capabilities to the point where if Putin were to do this seriously, there probably isn't anything that NATO could do to prevent him in the short term establishing serious uh, territorial gains and actually um, arriving at the gates of uh, of Tallinn and or Riga in something like 60 hours. That was the result of a, a rather famous war game played out by Rand about three years ago. So... Defence plans in Europe need legitimately to worry about what the consequences of that scenario would be. And in the normal course of things, we would have expected that um, if that did happen, that NATO would take a bit of time to react, to reassemble its reinforcement forces, to bring troops in across the Atlantic, to assemble uh, the sort of NATO um, capacity which would be able in due course to drive the Russians out. But the scenario that uh, I paint in this picture, and one which does worry defence planners, is at that point, the Russians might resort to um, a low-scale 
demonstrative nuclear use. Led off a bomb in northern Poland where Allied forces were um, uh, assembling to um, take back the Baltic states. And one can be fairly clear that at that moment there would be the actual critical judgment of whether there was any chance that the Americans were going to retaliate in kind and whether Mr. Trump was going to honor the US nuclear guarantee to Europe, which has kept peace for 70 years on the basis that the American president ultimately would be ready to risk Chicago for Berlin. And frankly, I find myself, I find that uh, proposition pretty incredible. And I think in those circumstances, a more likely way in which things would develop would be that there would be no American response, there would be no allied response, and you'd end up with um, a stalemate. Um, the military would in due course stand down, the diplomats and politicians would take over, and we would end up ratifying the reabsorption of the Baltic states into, into Russia, and have to acknowledge that the Russians had established a psychological mastery over, over Europe. I'd like to think that wasn't a probable scenario, but um, it's not as fantastical as we would have thought it half a dozen years ago. And it's um, something that defense planners in Europe do worry about, and is a very strong argument for the need to bolster Europe's uh, higher end defense capabilities so that we're not totally reliant on the American security guarantee. So I may say another argument, uh, just as a uh, tailpiece, another argument for not being totally over-reliant on the Americans is, has been demonstrated by the diplomacy of the last week when the Brits have um, uh, rediscovered with the famous ambassador saga that President Trump's view of his allies is that they're essentially there to be um, told what to do and that if they don't do that, they incur severe displeasure on his part. So how do you move towards having a greater self-sufficiency without driving the Americans out of Europe even further? Because they've been talking for decades about how Europeans need to take more responsibility for their own affairs. And I think one of the reasons why uh, Europeans have been so slow to increase their defence spending is because they worry that if they do look like they're becoming self-sufficient, um, it will provide yet another, well, even more impetus on, on for American withdrawal. And um, these things can happen quite precipitately, as the, uh, as the Syrian Kurds have discovered. They can think they have a strong ally in the US and um, wake up one morning and discover from a tweet that the Americans are pulling out and um, leaving them high and dry. And that's the last thing we'd want in Europe at the moment, where we would be extremely vulnerable to Russian aggression if the Americans were suddenly to pull out. As you say, this has to be approached gradually. I mean, the estimates are that we would probably need at least a decade and perhaps um, possibly ending up to two decades to repair the deficiencies in our in our conventional defense capabilities um, in order to be able to stand on our own feet against the Russians. In terms of money, that's actually not unfeasible. Um, How much money the amount do you think it would cost? Well, the, um, the International Institute of Strategic Studies have 
done had a look at all this recently and, and put a price tag of about $300 billion on it, which sounds like an awful lot of money, but that's not a hell of a lot more than we spend between us as European countries, EU member states, um, in one year. So it's spread over 20 years, but, you know, a, a relatively... Um, so it's $300 billion more than we're spending at the moment? Not uh, not every year. Um, that that amount of money spread over a, over a decade or two. So we're talking about a sort of ten percent more than we're spending at the moment over the next uh, uh, decade or so, um, which is indeed where the the, the trend of defence budgets budgets, which are which are going up in Europe quite substantially at the moment. And what would that money have to be spent on? Well, the sort of top end capabilities of command control. Uh, effective uh, air defense, effective air superiority, which is becoming, which is something that the NATO in the Cold War used to take fairly much for granted, but which is now becoming um, much more doubtful with the Russian conventional rearming. There's also a worry about some of the basic land warfare things, where it seems that we would be outranged and outgunned by the Russians in terms of land-based artillery and tanks um, in, a, in a serious land configuration. So there's quite a lot of um, work to be done there. But um, if we were all to meet our 2% obligations, there'd be no particular difficulty in, um, in doing that as Europeans. The trick, of course, would be to do it in ways that didn't, um, didn't piss off the Americans and cause them to pull out prematurely. But um, given that the Americans, not just Trump, but many American presidents have called for Europeans to step up and share the burden of transatlantic defense more, then provided we um, frame this right, um, not talking about European autonomy, not please talking about European armies, but talking about um, strengthening the European pillar within NATO, doing more within NATO as Europeans, um, I can't see any reason why the Americans should object to this, and it's perfectly uh, attainable Given, given unity of um, European political will and uh, readiness to work together for such a joint aim, which of course has been the thing that's been missing for, for a great many years, the lot of talk about the necessity to pool our efforts and resources and defence more, more coherently, but much less action. And just at the moment, um, although there are a lot of Europeans who do worry about the Russians, there are a lot of Europeans who don't, and are much more concerned about the um, problems and uh, threats we face on the southern um, borders of Europe. So we'd need both parties to, um, we'd need all Europeans to come together. And uh, I think that what this requires a sort of conscious, almost a sort of pact between the different persuasions in European defence. Those who worry about the Russians would benefit from this sort of uh, program I've outlined, but they're doing more within NATO, strengthening uh, European pillar within NATO. But I think in, uh, the corollary would be that they would have to collaborate with other Europeans in doing more operationally towards the south and the east, um, and in particular doing more on the Sahel and uh, trying to meet the concerns of those who worry more about migration and terrorism and instability from the South. All that um, would make a coherent package which Europeans should be able to jointly agree on. So there are various different parts to how one would go about doing that in your paper. One idea which um, maybe would 
do with some explanation for people who aren't defence wonks is this idea of a European level of ambition. What is a level of ambition and why does it change? If you're planning to do more together on defence, you, you need an order of priorities. You know, what comes first? Do we care about the fact that we um, you know, haven't got decent satellite capabilities or is it more important that we haven't got proper drones? Or you need to have some way of working out what it is that you regard as the main capability priorities that you need to, to work together to fund and correct and, and sort out. Now, you normally get there by, um, well, deciding what you want your armed forces to do, where the, what sort of operations and missions do you want them to be able to undertake, at what scale, maybe how many of them at the same time. You need to have a shared concept of what sort of armed forces you'd ideally like to be able to produce between you um, for what kind of operations. And that's known as a level of ambition. Um, NATO has a level of ambition which uh, describes um, the sort of things that together the Allies should be able to achieve. How many major scale operations, how many lesser scale operations together, and um, that is used to decline the various more detailed capabilities that should be jointly produced. My thought is that. Um, Yes, uh, a European level of ambition within NATO would amount to this, would amount to the European member states of NATO saying, we've agreed collectively that we need this bulk of military capability. We, the Europeans, are going to take responsibility for this half or this third or this chunk of the overall allied requirement. And look, Americans, don't worry, leave it to us. We will get together and find a way one way or another to build that over the next five or 10 years. And it seems to me that must be welcome to the Americans who look for burden sharing from the European allies and would be um, a very satisfactory way of building European capabilities to defend themselves. So the, the second thing which you talk about is this whole idea of, of having a distinct European pillar within NATO. Do you want to explain how that would work? Well, I mean, that is, that is essentially the same idea. It's, it's saying that um, the Europeans would have a bit of a collective identity within the alliance and be ready as Europeans, as a bunch of European member states, say we will take responsibility for this chunk of the alliance's concerns. I would also like to see the Europeans doing a lot more in terms of um, in terms of providing shorter term reassurance by their deployments to the uh, allies in Central and Eastern Europe, because at the moment it's pretty much exclusively the Americans who are present on the ground in Poland or Romania or the Baltic states, not entirely, but it is very largely the Americans who are there providing this reassurance of their, of their presence on the ground. And if we want to develop the habits of solidarity and mutual trust amongst the European member states, then it seems to be essential that Western Europeans should be more present and visible on the ground to their Eastern allies who feel themselves under the shadow of the Russians. And that's the way, hopefully, you could get those same Eastern and Central Europeans to interest themselves in the 
in the other axis of concern, which Western Europeans tend to be more fretful about, which is to the south, uh, Africa and the, some of the near Middle Eastern problems. So the the other the next idea which you kind of talk about is to show uh, Americans that we're serious. We should have a, a better division of operational labor between Europeans and Americans. Do you want to explain how that would work? I think it's a mistake to uh, regard the, the doubts that we currently have about Trump and his commitment to the alliance as being um, an exclusively Trumpian aberration which will go away once there is a democratic president back in the White House. I mean, I think that we would be wise to see the trend of the last uh, couple of decades, which is that America is understandably becoming more and more preoccupied with the challenge from China and increasingly believes, and this is this was Obama as much as uh, as much as Trump, increasingly believes that the Europeans should be doing more to look after themselves and should be doing more to look after security in what Americans see as our own backyard, the Balkans, North Africa. So one thing we could and should do as Europeans, as the CSDP, it seems to me, is take over responsibility for the stabilization force in Kosovo. Um, that's a, a NATO-run operation, has been for 20 years. I don't see why the Europeans shouldn't uh, take that over. And to the extent that um, military means can be usefully applied in the situation of uh, North Africa and the Sahel, um, we should be increasingly ready to step up there and tell the Americans that they don't have to worry. There are about 7,000 American troops in Africa at the moment, and Trump has at various times talked about wanting to draw those down. Well, fine, let him do that and let the Americans, then let the Europeans move in and take up the slack. Um, a lot of that is to do with the uh, supporting the, the so-called G5, the local countries in the Sahel, helping them to uh, counter terrorism and they, uh, take the lead in countering terrorism, but providing them with the specialist support that they need, or indeed um, helping out the UN missions there, which are um, uh, often increasingly uh, have increasing difficulty in getting competent troops to to work for them. So there's plenty that Europeans could be doing there. And as a demonstration to the Americans that we're looking after our own backyard, and as a way of getting ourselves back into the habit of um, military cooperation. Because although 20 years ago, CSDP was launched with a, with a fanfare of, um, of uh, crisis management operations, over time, that has more or less dwindled to nothing. Unfortunately, CSDP, the European uh, defense effort has very largely ceased to be operational. We, we do civil operations now. We send um, intelligence experts or judges or um, policemen, but we don't send the military. And that needs to be reversed, I think. So you also suggest a couple of other ideas. One was um, sending troops to Kosovo and taking over the responsibility of Kosovo from NATO. Uh, that's right. Which would be a relatively straightforward thing to do, given that most of the uh, most of the troops and indeed the commander at the moment are supplied by European countries. But it's under a NATO badge, and we need to um, we need to have the confidence to say, well, we can handle this. That's a European operation; it doesn't have to be under a NATO badge. We don't need to be dependent on the idea that ultimately there's an American backstop for whatever we're doing there and that we can perfectly competently, given the fact that we have a million and a half men under arms, 
um, overall in Europe, we can perfectly competently keep the peace in, in Bosnia um, without having to rely on any kind of American backstop. And then the other idea you put forward is about an air group, the European air group. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is in this is in relation to the the way in which, as I was saying just now, CSDP has ceased to do military operations almost entirely, and the Brussels atmosphere for launching CSDP operations seems to be very um, unpropitious at the moment, which is, I think, what's largely led to the French saying, well, okay, outside the EU structures, we'll have this thing called the European Intervention Initiative, which is a way of gathering together 10 or a dozen European member states who, or not just European member states, because uh, their idea is that the Brits should remain involved in the future. But, uh, European, but not just EU, is what I'm trying to say. And the idea is that member states who are a bit more proactive militarily and a bit more ready to think about intervention operations in the future um, should work together to prepare for them um, and exercise together and exchange doctrines and, and just get used to working together in this area. Now, considering that almost all uh, EU European intervention operations in the last couple of decades have been basically air operations, um, bombing campaigns in Libya or in the Balkans or, or indeed against ISIS now, what it seems to me logical to do then is to build up a, a European air intervention group, which is to say that you work out um, you, you put together a virtual group, doesn't have to have all the planes on the same base because uh, any air force, a combined air group can be assembled very rapidly, provided that periodically they train together and know what their roles are. So you designate the roles for an effective um, intervention from the air, repeat of the uh, operation on Benghazi, for example, and you know who's going to provide the, um, the, the air-based reconnaissance, who's going to provide the... Uh, as we're refueling, you make sure that um, there are enough planes around uh, combat aircraft which can carry smart munitions and which have decent defensive aids on them, which are not necessarily a given in the, in the uh, armed forces of Europe. You make sure you've got enough stockpiles of smart munitions to uh, um, run a campaign, and you make sure that you've got the proper command and control and intelligence capabilities so that the thing can be... And a, a substantial air operation could be managed collectively. Now, all that you can do without um, without creating a separate European Air Force, but you just have um, uh, an air group um, which comes together, exercises from time to time, and um, is ready ready to be summoned up and operate together if, if, if and when the need arises. So. Um, you wait till you get to page 10 or 11 of the paper before you deal with the, the most difficult and sensitive issue. In your scenario, you had Russia using nuclear weapons in Europe, which is, goes to the kind of heart of, of, um, of Europe's vulnerabilities. Do you want to talk a bit more about the nuclear dimension? Yes, I put it off till the end of the paper because if I... The sad fact is that if I'd introduced it on page two of the paper, then I think about 90% of Europeans at the moment would have simply set the paper to one side because there is a huge reluctance, a very understandable reluctance of most Europeans now to, to even so much as think about nuclear issues. We know how 
difficulties have been in the past. None of us want to return to the terror of the Cold War. None of us want to return to the awful internal political eruptions of the Euro missiles crisis of the 1980s when uh, governments felt the need to um, to host new European, uh, new American nuclear missiles on European soil, and many populations felt extremely strongly against this, and a lot of uh, internal disruptions. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody would just much rather not think about nuclear weapons at all. But unfortunately, if you're talking about defense, then ultimately, particularly if you have in mind a nuclear-armed opponent like Mr. Putin, who is very heavily nuclear-armed and clearly disposed to use nuclear weapons if he thinks it would, you know, the risk calculus would justify it, then we've got to um, face that reality. And here again, we don't actually ultimately need the Americans because we have two nuclear powers in Europe. We have the French and we have the British. And we need, in my view, to work ourselves towards a situation in which the French and the British offer uh, extended deterrence, offer their nuclear umbrella to allies and partners in Europe. And critically, of course, that um, those allies and partners in Europe um, acknowledge and accept this offer of a nuclear umbrella as the, as the ultimate backstop and ultimate deterrent to any um, aggression, particularly from Russia. Uh, of course, it could be in future from other nuclear armed states, but that's, the, that's where the situation um, uh, bites most uh, uh, severely at the moment. I mean, you know, there are particularly Germany, where I spend a lot of time, this is a pretty neuralgic issue. There was a, a strange debate that came out of nowhere a couple of years ago about uh, whether Germany needed to, to either promote the uh, existence of a, of a European bomb or to come up with a, uh, a much closer alignment with France. But after a few weeks of um, uh, people writing op-eds in different newspapers, that debate subsided pretty quickly and no one's come back to it recently. How would you persuade them that this is something which is worth taking forward? Well, I think events will will persuade people in Europe that this is something that has to be addressed at some point. I mean, if my predictions are right about the um, increasing uh, unlikelihood of uh, um, that the American nuclear guarantee will, it will be increasingly difficult to repose all our hopes in that. Then I, I think that um, increasingly non-nuclear armed Europeans will will develop the feeling that they either have to be prepared to essentially just relapse into uh, a sort of Swiss-like neutrality uh, and with the abandonment of uh, effective sovereignty in the wider world, which would, which would go with that, or they're going to have to be ready to um, engage with the British and French to uh, talk about how there could be a Euro deterrent. Meanwhile, um, it's entirely up to the uh, French and the British to do two things. One of them is to strengthen their already fairly um, interesting nuclear partnership, but there's much more they could do under the uh, Lancaster House Agreement to to demonstrate that they're that they have each other's backs, if you like, which is the position at the moment, and by developing their declaratory policy, I mean they've. Both parties have 
hinted for years, decades even, that they see their national nuclear deterrence as, as something more than just for their own nations, but also as an asset for securing um, neighbors and partners. But if they get more explicit about that um, over time, then Britain and France will be effectively moving towards making this offer of a nuclear umbrella. And I think that uh, you know, if, uh, if we revert to um, happiness and peace and Russia and something that goes, uh, goes properly democratic, then we can forget all about it for a while. Um, but if it doesn't, then um, I, I think the, the geostrategic evolution of the European situation would dispose more and more partners to get interested in the idea of, of what uh, a euro deterrent might do for for their own security and the last thing which you uh, i think you end the paper with is talking about how europeans need to think for themselves and talk about the this idea which was first floated by angela merkel and um picked up afterwards by emmanuel macron of the european security council as a, a way of forcing them not just to think for themselves but to to talk about it amongst themselves yes well uh, Classically, the uh, the thing that people just don't want to talk about, refuse to talk or think about at the moment, is precisely this nuclear deterrence that we've just been talking about. In a recent ECFR report, which is a sort of fairly comprehensive survey of attitudes across Europe, and unsurprisingly, we found that uh, most Europeans were addressing the euro deterrence question with their eyes tight shut. Um, that's understandable. Less understandable, I think, is why we've been 20 years in Afghanistan without, as far as I'm aware, ever having a serious conversation amongst ourselves as Europeans about what the hell we're doing there, whether it really is essential to carry on um, paying this expensive tribute to the Americans for the protection they give us in Europe. Have we? What serious conversations have we yet managed to have about um, about China and? Uh, to what extent we're going to be prepared to line up with the Americans and seeing the Chinese as uh, a major strategic rival in the next uh, uh, in the coming decades, or how, how there might be a more nuanced and uh, more characteristic European approach to that. I mentioned in the paper that um, you know there are plenty of things that we need to uh, form European ideas on before we get bounced, and as in see last week that the British and French have now agreed to an American suggestion that they should backfill for the Americans with ground forces in Syria. Germany, I think, has, has made a similar offer and declined. Um, but I was that discussed by European countries before it happened? I think it's a profoundly retrograde step for, for Britain and France to putting ground forces into Syria. I can see no advantage in that at all. But again, it's um, if you haven't thought about these things and haven't prepared for them, discussed them together, it's very difficult to um, do other than acquiesce to the latest American request. So there are a whole series of big issues that we, we fail to discuss together as Europeans. Um, exactly how a European Security Council would work, I don't have a blueprint, but I do think it's worth exploring that idea further and considering whether you know, a European Security Council supported by a uh, a proper apparatus to uh, to think these issues through and provide options and possible different approaches for heads of state and government to think hard about is something we do we we very much do need. Otherwise, we end up just continuing to outsource our 
uh, strategic thinking to the Americans. Um, and that means you end up um, having to do what you're told. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nick. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Um, if you've enjoyed this, you must head straight to our website at www.ecfr.eu and click on the tab on European sovereignty, which will take you straight to Nick's paper, which is called Building Europeans' Capacity to Defend Themselves. And um, next to his paper, you can see some of the other papers in this strategic sovereignty series. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let your friends and family and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But for now, from Nick Whitney and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFL's podcast is Jonathan Hachenpoich, and this podcast is being edited by Arba Ribbing. <laughs>